Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> want to uh, start off the talk tonight with a favorite passage of mine from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind <clears throat> by Suzuki Roshi. Is this loud enough? Can everybody hear? Yeah. Um, from the, the wonderful book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. <clears throat> In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses. Excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will. Before it sees the shadow of the whip, the second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you will find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think that the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? he would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice meditation with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically, usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? Mm. Unless you sit perfectly in full lotus, you're saying, hey, wait about me. Uh, there's still hope for you yet. Yeah. It's, uh, it's such a, a natural and understanding, understandable tendency to want to do this right, want to be a good meditator, and what we measure ourselves against is often some either impossible standards or imagined standards either against everybody else on the retreat or what happened to us at the last sitting of the last retreat when finally everything settled down. And this is a sure prescription for dukkha. This is what the Buddha called the conceit of I am. Mana. 
conceit of I am, this tendency to compare, to reify, to uh, a sense of self and compare it against others. And so I want to talk tonight a bit about uh, this tendency to compare and judge in case it happens to arise in your your practice. <clears throat> and I think it's um, helpful to get a perspective on this that if you find yourself falling into uh, those patterns of thought and uh, cause uh, lots of suffering for yourself, uh, you're, you're not alone. This conceit of I am which is not just in the usual way that we use the word conceit of feeling better than, but it's any kind of comparison, better than, worse than, or even equal to. This conceit of I am, this reifying a sense of self and comparing it against others or some kind of imaginary standard of who we should be or who we think we should be, uh, is so deeply ingrained in our um, in our patterns of thinking, and in fact, uh, if you uh, are familiar, or you might not be familiar with the the different stages of enlightenment in the classical Theravadan model, there are four stages of enlightenment: the stream enterer the once-returner, the non-returner, and the arhat, fully enlightened being. And with each of those stages, there are some um, what are called fetters that are, um, that are abandoned, let go of. At the first stage, there's three fetters, the uh, belief in self, uh, uh, doubt about the pa- uh, doubt about the path and belief in rites and rituals things like that and each one there's there's some lessening of these fetters at the th- the third stage of enlightenment which is pretty rarefied territory there's still this conceit of I am there's still this judging and comparing and reifying sense of self in the mind that occurs from time to time. So if you find that you're still comparing, uh, one way you can think of it is, well, you're no higher than third stage of enlightenment, (laughs) but you've got a lot of company. How to work with this. First, uh, uh, I'll share with you a a quote from the Buddha that uh, I love. <clears throat> from uh, the Sutta Napata. This is translated by a man named V. Faustball. <clears throat> One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under these three conditions, for that person the notions equal superior or inferior, do not exist. For one who is free from views such as these, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions like these, they wander about in the world annoying people. And who do you think we most annoy when we grasp after these kinds of views? Pretty obvious, isn't it? When for you does it arise as you're practicing? And just uh, reflect on it so that it's it's a bit more uh, alive for you. When do you notice the comparing mind. <clears throat> Maybe it's 
in a restless sitting and everybody seems so still, you're sure they're, they're, you're surrounded by Buddhas and you're just kind of having a meltdown in your mind. You know? Or you're doing walking meditation and there you are, you know, trying to do it in the way you think you're supposed to do it and somebody's going really slowly. And the mind can compare and have all kinds of judgments like, God, they are a real yogi. You know. It could also have a judgment like, who do they think they're trying to prove? You know. <laughs> Same exact thing. You know. Or somebody who's doing fast walking. Just the mind, one, one hour can say, gosh, they're not trying to impress anyone. How cool. I wish I could be like that and just let myself go fast. You know. Or another walking period, don't they get it? Why don't they just slow down? You know? The mind will go anywhere. You know? Meal times, of course, is probably the most social time. Have you seen your mind? You know? Oh my goodness, look at their plate. You know? How much do they need? You know? You know, or, oh God, miss mindfulness just chewing so <laughs> impeccably. You know? It's funny. It's good to laugh at it. You know? Or heaven forbid if you drop your fork and you know the whole room has heard the, the resounding cacophony of your fork hitting the ground and all eyes are on you, you know it. You know. It's kind of interesting and funny, especially if you can have a sense of humor about it. And you can have all kinds of ideas, not only about other people, but about, of course, how you're coming off. And uh, again, this is the, the judging mind or the comparing mind turned inward. On, on one retreat, uh, some of you have heard this before, I, uh, in my early days of, of practice, I really, I loved walking slowly. It can be fun, especially if you're not, you know, trying hard. It just kind of, you get in that gear and it's just, it's, it can be delicious sometimes. But I notice a slightly different motivation when I was alone as opposed to when there was somebody around, you know? And I'd just be uh, by myself, lifting, moving, placing. So it could be so sweet. Somebody else could come into my space, and I, I would, used to do a lot of mental noting, and I started to notice lifting, moving, looking good. Lifting, <laughs> moving, looking good, looking good, you know? That was my main note after a while, just looking good. You know, it was, it was, when I could laugh, it was okay, but at times it was painful. God, looking good, looking good. Just do the walking for crying out loud, not looking good. So just notice when it, when it comes up for you and and see it as a very rich area of practice where in the seeing there's a possibility of, of uh, awakening to this tendency of mind that is not just yours but is the predicament that we find ourselves in most of us most much of the time <clears throat> and particularly we come from, or those who are here in the States particularly, in the West in general, but in the States even more so, a very competitive culture. You know, we're number one. We're number one. You know, there's the, uh, there's the phenomenon in, uh, in Australia and, and New Zealand. I, I've been there recently and they have this idea of the tall poppy syndrome <clears throat> where the tall poppy is the one 
that gets cut off. And often um, look at how the world views the United States with its big ego of being having to be number one. And it can be so intrinsic in our cultural psyche, but it can be about anything. My basketball team, <clears throat> which is number one right now, <laughs> just so you know. <clears throat> my uh, meditation practice, my religion, my ethnic background, my culture, my class, even if it's, if it's seen to be less than, there can be a pride, or there can be, on the other way, superior, inferior, lots of conditioning. And of course, it then goes to our personal um, being, my body, look at my body. And I forget if I mentioned it here, you know, we see the, the pain that supermodels go through, that they're not thin enough. And just how deep the, the cultural um, conditioning is my mind, you know, when I was, when I was going to, to, to college, I wore my neuroses as a, as a badge of honor, you know. I'm really screwed up, you know. <laughs> I am deep, you know. So, just to see how it works, and it, it's not like it stops when you take the Dharma seat. It can be just as, uh, uh, as much of a, an area to compare. You know, I would, uh, team teaching that can, in the earlier days of, of teaching with, with other teachers, you know, it was, it was so pronounced. When I first started teaching, this is in the early 80s, uh, I, and I'd be teaching down at Yucca Valley <clears throat> this big retreat in uh, near Palm Springs in Southern California, and I'd be teaching um, with a very high-caliber team. Joseph Goldstein would give a talk and just blow everyone away with how deep and clear he, he was. My hero. Right? Jack Cornfield would give a talk and just weave this spell of enchantment over everyone, right? Sharon Salzberg would give a talk and the tears flowing from people about Meta, right? And then I'd have to go and give the talk. And I knew if I was in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy off and get Goldstein back on, right? It was really, it was really painful, yeah. Here's... Uh, from Ajahn Sumedho, I, I quoted him the last time about, uh, about joy, that, that we can sometimes forget about joy. He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight, nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all of this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho, you can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to ever give another talk again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. 
they seem still quite grateful about it. So that makes it a bit easier. One time at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. (laughs) And up till that time, I'd only talked for half an hour, and that was a strain, but three hours. (laughs) And he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours, and I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. (laughs) And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. (laughs) And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff. Entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at all of this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval, All these have come up during all of these years of giving Dharma talks. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of this self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So, this comparing against others or some imagined unrealistic standard. This conceit of I am, this reifying a sense of self, how am I doing, is uh, basically, as I see it, rooted in fear. The fear of not being enough, or this, the fear of not being complete, a sense of unworthiness, or that can come out as uh, self-judgment or self-loathing. And this is a, a great misunderstanding. Maybe uh, some of you have heard this story of... Uh, the Dalai Lama uh, coming to, uh, to IMS. Was this told here before? No. Uh, and this was, this was in 1979 uh, at the three-month retreat that I was fortunate enough to be sitting. And it was just after the Dalai Lama came to the States the, for the first time. He came in September and he visited us uh, this, uh, late November um, and um, he did a question and answer period with everyone, which is a great way to uh, end a three-month retreat, by the way, for the Dalai Lama to come and <laughs> do a little Q&A. <clears throat> and in the, um, in the Q&A, somebody asked him, um, did he have any advice on working with self-hatred and self-loathing? And the Dalai Lama, um, it took a little while for the translator to get across the concept. At first, he didn't get it. And they went back and forth, back and forth. And then finally, he understood. And he looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine the Dalai Lama saying that to you after (laughs) two and a half months of sitting. But he said it with tremendous compassion. And then what I heard, what I got was, what makes you think that everything else belongs in the fabric of life and somehow you're not good enough, that you're a mistake? This is real misunderstanding. It was a very uh, impactful moment. You're wrong. I went to uh, let's see, I went to um, 
study with a teacher uh, that some of us have uh, have studied uh, studied with. He passed away in uh, 1995. This wonderful Advaita teacher, H. Uh, w. L. Punja, known as Punjaji or Papaji. A very loving and wise uh, being, <coughs> and uh, I went. Uh, I went with lots and lots of questions, and he would say each time, you know, "Give me all your questions, all your questions." And uh, one question I had was, um, he talked about um, that you're already. You're already free. You're already enlightened. If you only could see clearly um, that you are completely enlightened right now. And I was coming from the classical Theravadan model, which is a lot of practice over lots of time, and maybe you will awaken if your karma is good enough and ripe. And uh, so this is a little bit confusing for me. Uh, and he, he didn't talk much uh, in terms of karma. He talked about it in terms of grace. So I couched this question this way. Uh, and I said, you know, uh, uh, Punjaji, you talk that, that we're, we're, the conditions are sufficient for us to awaken here and now. And you, uh, you say that uh, we have everything we need. And you talk about you have all the grace you need. And I, I wonder, what if, what if your, your karma is such you, that you don't have all the grace that you need? What if there's still more work to do to have sufficient grace? And he looked at me and he said, Let's see if I can... Channel him. He, he said, uh, "Grace, you, know, you ask if you have enough grace. You know. Look at you. You come from around the world. Very sincere intention. We know this. You know, very good teacher. You come to visit. <laughs> very good circumstances. Grace. You're neck deep in grace, and you wonder if you have enough grace." You're neck deep in grace and you wonder if you have what it takes. And I would just <laughs> invite you to look at your own circumstances. Here you are somehow being called to practice the Dharma for one or two months very sincere intention or something that's pulled you here with just the right circumstances or optimal circumstances of support in a pretty good center with um, hopefully helpful guides. You have extraordinary karma that you can take off this time and this is what you want to do with it. Amazing grace. Amazing good karma. So if you wonder, do I have what it takes? Don't miss out on this fact. Especially as the mind says, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough or I have what it takes. There's a line I love from um, The Course in Miracles, this beautiful um, body of, um, of wisdom coming out of uh, uh, Christian, uh, some Christian uh, high teachings. And it says, um, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Which is the same thing as what 
the Dalai Lama was saying, or that neck deep in grace. See who you really are. See what this mind-body process that called you really is. Um, Brian was was talking, he's been talking so so beautifully about um, seeing through views, the views that arise and the the ways we get caught and what we the possibility of seeing through them and has been as has been mentioned perception of the five skandhas is a, a particular area where the comparing mind comes into play out of necessity but can lead into comparing better than or worse than because perception is is taking in the moment information and filing it in the big hard drive in here that sees, oh, what is this? This is a bell. This is a big bell. This is a beautiful meditation hall. And then you imagine all the other meditation halls that you've been in. It's just the way it works. But when the comparing goes to better or worse than, you're missing out on an essential point that these different expressions of life are all unique, not better or worse. It's not like you go into a forest and look at the different trees and say, gee, it's too bad that tree is so gnarled, you know. If only it was a little straighter, you know. Or that's, that's a, an old tree and, uh, you know, time for it to go. You know? <laughs> well, that's a young tree. Come on, let's get a little bit stronger there. Every tree is just the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> and it's perfect, you know. A gnarled tree, what character that tree has. In the same way, a field of flowers, do you say, which is the prettiest daisy? You know, they're all perfect in their own way. And that's what we're being called on to see. See beyond this comparing mind to the uniqueness of it. <clears throat> Ajahn Sumedho has a uh, also a, another beautiful image. Um, he talks about when practice deepens and is rich, there is what he calls the shining through of the divine. Those beautiful qualities that we've been cultivating in the afternoon of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity or peace, those are qualities that shine through when the mind isn't confused and obscuring them. And they shine through, the shining through of the divine, where taking ownership of them is a complete misapprehension. Can you say, my unconditional love is better than your unconditional love. It doesn't make any sense. My pure awareness is better than yours or is not as good as yours. It's just awareness. And when, when the heart, one heart touches another heart, it's not that one of them has the love and the other one doesn't. It's just really love finding itself and meeting itself and awakening itself through these forms. That's one way, that's how I, I see it. But to take ownership of that is really um, missing the point. To take ownership of it, but also to deny the gift that you've been given. So they're both true, as, as Brian was saying last night. There's the relative and the absolute. 
the love that shines through you or the awareness that shines through you is both yours and not yours. And that's the, the sweet dance that we can, let's see, that we can um, play with. This is a, a, a passage that uh, probably a number of you have heard before. It's such a beautiful passage from uh, Martha Graham, the great choreographer, to Agnes DeMille, who, another great dancer who studied with her. She says, There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And since there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to simply keep it yours clearly and directly and to keep the channel open. To keep the channel open so it can just flow through you. So, given that this is a predicament that we uh, all share to one degree or another until we're fully enlightened, how to work with this judging and comparing mind? <clears throat> so I want to offer a few uh, strategies that I've found helpful that you probably have discovered for yourself. Um, first of all, one is forgiveness. If you are frustrated by your comparing and your judging mind, you are simply judging the judging and you can go into an infinite regression on that. I think we've talked about it. Judging the judging and then judging the judging of the judging and on and on and on until just in one moment you can see the game for what it is and realize, oh, it's just this habit of mind. It's just judging. And you can actually bring kindness and compassion to it. This is what we've been talking about in one way or another since the beginning of the retreat and particularly now as we're doing the compassion practice, how key this is in all the ways where you see the mind not cooperating or seemingly um, rebelling or uh, giving you a hard time. It's doing the best it can and it just get, gets caught in habits. As soon as you see it's just a habit, then the wise response is compassion. The natural response when you really understand that is compassion. Just like if you saw somebody else, if you, particularly a little kid, giving herself or himself a hard time just running around in knots or in circles because they somehow weren't good enough and they were really beating themselves up, how would you feel? What would you want that child to know? You'd probably just want to pick her up or him up and hold it and say, it's okay, dear. You're okay just the way you are, wouldn't you? And yet when it comes to ourselves, we are often the last to be able to receive that. Here's a, a, a um, self-compassion practice. I know Bonnie did a, a little self-compassion today and you, you did some yesterday as well. Uh, a little self-compassion practice uh, that has become um, a good tool that many people have, have used. Did you do the Christineff? This is uh, from uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, who 
have, um, have developed a, a whole training uh, teaching mindful self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've, they're, they're practitioners. They've sat here and, um, and they're both um, uh, professors, uh, Kristen at University of Texas in Austin and Chris Germer in Harvard. Very simple distilling the essence of self-compassion when you're giving yourself a hard time, just try this. And you can't overdo this, by the way. Um, it's a four-step, very simple process. Okay? First step, put your hand on your heart. Which uh, physiologically releases oxytocin, the feel-good hormone, stimulates the vagus nerve, the compassionate nerve that runs through your whole, uh, a great part of your body. Physiologically, you're soothing yourself and comforting yourself and bringing compassion that way. And then three different phrases, and you can use your own variation of them. First try it, and then I'll, I'll repeat it, and you can write them down if you want. Uh, you might close your eyes. So there you are giving yourself a hard time and then putting your hand on your heart. Feel the tenderness. And first phrase, this is a moment of suffering. You're just kind of calling it like it is or uh, an alternative that you might use is, this is really hard right now. Just kind of Naming it like it is. Taking that in. Next. Suffering is a part of life. You're acknowledging the first noble truth and you might in that acknowledgement reflect on all the people in the world who are going through the kind of suffering that you are in this moment. Suffering is a part of life. So you feel a connection with, with so many others. Third phrase, may I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. Just reminding you can have a tenderness. This is a moment of suffering Suffering is a part of life. May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. And as you're doing it, let yourself receive, take in those warm feelings. And I find it helpful also to tune into the fact that you are the one who's giving yourself that compassion. You're the hand, the wise one, who is comforting. So there's a kind of wholeness, knowing just how to hold yourself and letting yourself take it in. Okay, so that is uh, one very helpful tool But the basic idea is um, not to take it personally and to see it's just a habit of mind and there can be forgiveness for getting confused again and again. For, I've shared this with a few people, for two years my main practice was a variation of this. Whenever I saw myself judging and I've got a good judging mind, even better than yours. it's changed a lot. But at one point I saw this is really, this is my real frontier. And for, for two years, whenever I'd notice a judging thought, I just put my hand on my cheek. This is another variation if you, if you want to try it. Just uh, put your hand on your cheek and uh, just as you're caressing your cheek, saying in the softest tone, oh, judging, judging, like, it's okay, it's okay. Let Kuan Yin do the noting. 
there's a Kuan Yin right inside of you. Oh, it's judging. It's okay, dear. That was my main practice for two years. And it wasn't like I did this each time. But when I'd, but when I'd forget, I would. At some point, the tone, and if you use mental noting, the tone can have a dramatic impact on your relationship to experience. If you let Kuan Yin do the noting, and every time I saw a judgment was, oh great, another opportunity to practice compassion. And it, it works as you're practicing. So that's the first one, some forgiveness and self-compassion. A second uh, strategy is um, with wisdom seeing the emptiness of the thoughts. Joseph, I don't think I, I mentioned it here. Uh, Joseph has a, a, a very good instruction. Maybe I did. But anyway. Very good instruction. If he says, if you're bothered by your thoughts and you're sitting in a meditation hall, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Yeah. Did I say that already? Yeah. It's a great practice because you don't have to blame yourself for whatever thoughts are coming through. Who knows why they come or where they come from? Those thoughts are as empty as you see them to be or as real as you believe them to be. Another uh, attitude that, that loosens that sense of self, of reifying, is a sense of humor. It's, it makes a huge difference. You know. uh, on one retreat, I'm uh, working with the judging mind, as many years ago, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite piece of Dharma wisdom is the, it's called the, the Verses on the Faith Mind by the Third Zen Patriarch of China. Sengstan. And he has, uh, there's so many beautiful couplets, but one of them was, is, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. That made a lot of sense to me. The burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. So what I did on this one fall retreat working with the judging mind, every time I'd notice a judgment, I would just tag on the reminder, the burdensome practice of judging. That was enough. I'd go into the dining room, which, as I said, very social situation. You know, oh my God, look at their plate. The burdensome practice of judging. You know. <laughs> They're going for thirds, <laughs> the burdens of practice of judging. And I, honestly, I would go through a meal 50, 75 times at least, you know. And at some point, it just becomes a hoot, you know. Look at the mind. You've got two choices, either to scream and drive yourself crazy and say, when are you going to shut up? Or just laugh at the craziness of it. I suggest going for the latter. <laughs> because when you can have a sense of humor about it, I think I might have mentioned this, when you can move from look at my mind to look at the mind, then you're in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. And there's some space because you're not taking it so personally. So having a sense of humor is, is really very, very helpful. Something else that I want to share with you. A more direct practice. Well, it's a practice you've been doing, but I want to share with a little variation. And that is, of course, saying metta for yourself. But as maybe you've seen, it sometimes is easier said than done. Anybody notice that? It's amazing how we're the last ones that we 
uh, often can give that kindness to. And uh, I hit upon a practice that I think I'll, I'll share with you now. I'd like to share it. Uh, when I was doing a, 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 a six-week period of, of metta practice a uh, number of years ago. And the first, um, the first week, uh, it was of all of four Brahma Viharas, um, but a, a good chunk of it was on metta. And the first week was uh, metta for self. Just... You know, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be peaceful, you know, going on and on for one week. And it was okay. I wasn't giving myself a hard time. By, I had been practicing for like about 20 years at this point. But it wasn't a gusher, really. You know, it was like, okay, may I be safe, may I be healthy, and it was, it was all right. Not great. But, all right. And then about halfway through this week, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. I just knew it. I mean, it was clear. And, um, and when they came to my mind, I thought, this would be so easy if I could just see what they saw. And then I magically connected the dots and ask myself, well, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And that's when I um, hit upon this way of doing metta for self that was a um, really a watershed moment, not only in my practice, but in my life. Uh, and so I want to just um, offer it to you, and you can use your own, to your own variation of it. So just try this. Close your eyes for a moment. You might sit up as you do it. And bring to mind someone who you share a, a really um, warm, loving connection. And it can be any it can be a pet, it can be a child, it can be somebody, if there's not anybody right now uh, in your life, it could be somebody from your past. You know, just Imagine this being right here with you and you might even just imagine them right in front of you looking back at you. Maybe they've got a big smile on their face because you picked them, right? And for a few moments, just feel that uh, sweet, loving energy that you share. You just enjoy each other. How sweet. And now for a moment, if you can, imagine inhabiting their reality and looking through their eyes or from their perspective and see who they see when they're with their friend. Why do they enjoy hanging out with you? Notice all the things about you that touch them. Maybe your playfulness or your goodness or your creativity or intelligence or sincerity. Drink it all in. Just even your essence. And from their perspective, see, is that person worth kindness, being treated kindly? And you might send from, as they would, uh, from that perspective, a few moments of kindness. May you really be happy and see all the, the goodness inside. And now, let your consciousness float back from their, their perspective and see if you can, from the inside, stay connected to all of those beautiful qualities. And just send yourself some kind thoughts, either second person or first person. May you really see all the goodness inside, or may I, either way. May 
may you share your love well, dear. Okay, you can open your eyes. Maybe if you got even just a little glimpse of what your friend saw, then, as I like to say, the jig is up. You can't pretend that you're not worthy of love. And if you weren't able to, don't give yourself a hard time. It's just this is uh, where you're at right now or or an area that that bears further um, attention. But your friends see who you see. Uh, something I like to, to, uh, to reflect on. Suppose you met somebody who really enjoyed you, enjoyed your sense of humor, really understood your take on things, and um, could connect with your hopes and your fears, who really understood you very, very well. How would you feel about Meeting someone like that. Wouldn't it be great? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. (laughs) Only one. The unfortunate thing is that they're right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you would probably be saying, where have you been all my life? Finally, Albert Einstein has this, this beautiful phrase that we live in an optical delusion of consciousness. And so from our perspective, we don't see the truth of things, but we're the last ones to see what others who know us and, and enjoy us see shining through. We're only seeing it through the filter of, yeah, but there's this and there's this and there's this. And we don't realize what naturally shines through. Uh, by the way, when I did that, that experiment uh, and that flip of consciousness that I just shared with you, it wasn't like I saw, oh my God, you are some incredible holy being. That wasn't it. It was, you know, you're okay. <laughs> that was it. Really. As I, maybe some of you have heard me say, okay is enough. You know, you're really okay. That's enough. Because then you don't have to be preoccupied with proving that you're okay. As I was saying, uh, I was talking with Bonnie earlier today, the, this beautiful Dogen teaching that that some of you might know to study buddhism is to study the self to study the self is to forget the self to forget the self is to be intimate with all things now just unpacking that to study buddhism is to study the self this is the the mind body laboratory that you have to understand the human condition to study the self is to forget the self. Once you see who you really are, you're not that small little you. You are, you see that it's just this expression of life. And you don't have to keep on validating yourself. To forget the self, when you stop being so preoccupied with yourself, to forget the self is to be intimate with all things. That's how it works. So with all of this, this comparing mind is just forgetting who you really are. Who you really are is the perfect expression of life as it is manifesting through you. And with that, there's no comparison, as we say. No comparison. Be, you're beyond compare. You are simply life manifesting in this unique form that's never been here before, that will never be here again. 
that flowers with as much understanding, appreciation, love, and wisdom that doesn't take it all personally, then everything manifests to its full potential. That's the good news. Being very kind and compassionate and forgiving and then seeing who you really are. This is good news. And everybody benefits from it, not just you. So you can just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.